Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, and how they got to the White House, but more importantly, how history looks back on them. As always with me, the man, the myth, the legend, the one that actually writes the scripts, does the research, and takes us down the seat rows of history. Whew. Said it very fast. Neil, how's it going? Uh, it's, it's going okay. Um, we had some technical difficulties here to start, so I'm just happy I, I got through my... I think your laptop is depressed from the previous episode. <laughs> Props. It's just like, I don't want to record. I don't want to do this. <laughs> Let's not do it. Yeah, yeah. I promise this won't be, at least this episode will be a bit more on the on a positive note. So, yeah. So last time around, James Buchanan fell short, not only in life, but during our episode against Dwight D, not LGBT. <laughs> so this week around, this, um, sorry, this episode. Uh, supposedly, Dwight has a contender. So, Neil, who is he up against? Uh, today, he's up against James Madison. The year is 1808. The importation of slaves into the United States, the 1806 Act Prohibition Importation of Slaves, takes effect. African slaves continue to be imported into Cuba and until the island abolishes slavery in 1865, half a million slaves will arrive on that island. The slave trade is abolished by the United Kingdom in all of its colonies as the Slave Trade Act of 1807 takes effect. This year, the British Royal Navy establishes the West Africa Squadron on the coast of West Africa to, to enforce the abolitionist blockade of Africa. Transfer of Portuguese court to Brazil. The Portuguese royal court arrived in Rio de Janeiro, making it the center of the Portuguese empire. And during this year, there's multiple ongoing wars, battles, and skirmishes. Some of them include the Peninsula War, a subsection of the Napoleonic Wars, as Spain, Portugal, and UK fought against uh, invading forces of the first French empire in the Iberian Peninsula. The Finnish Wall between the Kingdom of Sweden and Russian Empire and the Anglo-Spanish War ended with an alliance of UK and Spain as the threat of the French invasion grew stronger. And finally, the 1808 United States presidential election, James Madison defeats Charles C. Picnicky, that's the name, winning 122 electoral votes to Picnicky's 47. I mean, who could bid? Who, who would you vote for a picnicky? I wouldn't. I wouldn't vote. <laughs> Probably not. No. <laughs> Ten of the 17 states shows the electoral uh, shows their electors by popular vote. The rest shows through state legislature. John Clinton, who is separately elected as vice president, gets six electoral votes for the president uh, for the presidential race. So Neil, long-winded but eventful. Take it away. Very eventful. Okay. So we are on Founding Father 4 or 5 in terms of presidential order and in how many we've covered so far. And I wanted to begin here with a question, you know, for my own curiosity, Yousef. You know, when you think about all the Founding Fathers, which one is your favorite and which one do you think is, you know, most important for our country, you know, to, to have existed for as long as it has for about 250 years now? Uh, when you say favorite, you mean, um, like your personal favorite. So there's like two, there's two answers here. You can give two separate answers if you want. 
do they have to be presidents or can they just be amongst the founding like they can be the founding fathers yeah uh i think i'm in between uh hamilton madison and adams those kind of are interchangeable in my head i like adams because like his setup was great and his president's presidential run was so normal like it like i don't i don't remember us like bashing it to to smithereens like we've done to the rest <laughs> gotcha okay so I, yeah i'm just curious here because i'm gonna start off with a cbs poll that occurred cbs in- poll <laughs> sponsored well, by cbs <laughs> so cbs news did a poll in 2021 asking americans the first question there on their favorite founding father and they disagree with you in that George Washington is resoundingly the favorite in the country. Oh, wow. Is it because it's in the dollar bill? And that's the only one that people see 24-7? Yeah, and well, quarters, too. I mean, you know, but what I found shocking is that there isn't a, a partisan divide here. 42% of Republicans in the poll picked Washington as their favorite, along with 35% of Democrats and 41% of independents. So... The, the partisan agreement is actually consistent throughout the poll, as their list included, you know, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, John Adams, Thomas Paine, and John Jay. And it, each party agreed on the ranking order. It was a bit shocking to me, even more so this poll, because James Madison, universally known as the father of the Constitution, gets less love today than even John Adams. He's sixth on People the list. People like to read. I guess not, but like... Yeah, you had it. So the, the order, I'm not sure if I revealed it. We had Washington 1, Franklin 2, Jefferson 3, Hamilton 4, Adams 5, Madison 6. And then we have Payne at 7, J at 8. And so this kind of brings me back to our first episode when we you know, opened by comparing Adams' Adams's popularity to Jefferson's and how unjust it was that Jefferson has taught to us as all, you know, a, as a better founder. I mean... There are a lot of ways we could compare the founders and try to determine which should be the most celebrated. One easy way to do that is something you and I do pretty often and just kind of ask the simple question of which were slave owners. There are only three in the CBS list that are not, Adams, Hamilton, and John Jay. So, you know, by that very important metric, you would think, you know, Adams should be all of our favorites, but or Hamilton. But unfortunately, most Americans find, you know, several ways to set that part of these men's lives aside and Instead, we'll rely on what they understand of the founders to be the most accomplished and have the greatest impact. If we're going by that measure for the sake of further scrutinizing this poll, then Madison is being completely disrespected here. Like, sixth place, America? Like, really? Do do you know how much more love this guy deserves than Thomas Jefferson? Uh, I mean, I guess guess he's used to being overlooked. Right. I mean, do you mean that in like a a, a real way as well? Like physically (laughs) overlooked or... (laughs) I know you're trying to I know you're trying to give me my my next line is gonna be do you know how hard it is to be president if you're shorter than six feet let alone five four <laughs> that was my <laughs> you, you stole my shine it's fine you said all right but, come on man I'm, I was setting you up for it no you I can't keep I can't fine. keep holding back to short jokes man I'm just saying I, this is a short life Neil I cannot be held back okay Madison knows <laughs> Well, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington could never, all right? So so there's that. But Jefferson did technically write the Declaration of Independence, right? And Or he mostly did anyway. But he, but as we know from the Adams episode, Jefferson was kind of gifted that accomplishment with Adams asking him to write it and giving him plenty of guidance on what, you know, needed to be in the document. 
I mean, Adams convinced everyone that decoration was needed in the first place, but of course, Jefferson takes all the credit for putting together the final draft. While the decoration and the Revolutionary War and all the organization and will, it took for revolutionaries to defeat the British, you know, and how that was tremendous. And it's certainly a significant factor as to how we, you know, became the country we are today. Those events, I would argue, would not really mean anything today if not for Madison's efforts in forming a government that could maintain a cohesive structure of so many checks and balances. And more importantly, a deep sense of legitimacy to rule over its citizens. The problem is that nobody, you know, even people who like history, you know, wants to hear a story about how a wealthy and political philosophy obsessed kid used his well-connected network and his own expertise of past self-governing republics that failed to hold on to power as a springboard into being the most influential member of the Second Continental Congress that would eventually ratify the U.S. Constitution modeled off of Madison's Virginia plan. You know, Madison as a person just isn't all that interesting when compared to, you know, more voracious American figures like Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. Put simply, you know, he was just a a philosophy nerd who took his own ethics and principles very seriously. You know, he never saw battle in a revolutionary war like Washington and Hamilton, nor did he go overseas as a diplomat during the war like Franklin, Adams, and Jefferson. He He instead see he just couldn't see the field. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) You said you said said he didn't see battle. It's like everybody was standing in front of him. That's not his fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, technically, right? He technically was in the military, I, I guess, but he never saw. Like, I guess they didn't want to put him in battle for. The Maybe they could have got him a stool or a horse, something. <laughs> held the held, held the brother up. Okay, but he instead served in the Second Continental Congress and Virginia's governing bodies throughout the 1770s and 80s to be you know, where the real action was in figuring out if the United States could actually hold on to its power and maintain a functioning republic should they actually, you know, gain full independence. This question was Madison's passion in his political career. You know, he attended the College of New Jersey, which is now known as Princeton University, studying work. the first grad, right? But, uh, yeah, I don't know that. I think he's the first person to graduate from Princeton. Uh, yeah, we'll have, to, we'll have to do a little, like, Fact check. I'll Google, I'll Google it. I'll Google it. I think that's one of the fun facts that I saw. About. Ah, and then, you know, he, he he spent time there studying works on international law and the constitutions of ancient and modern confederacies. You know, such as like you know the old Dutch Republic and Swiss Confederation, and even the ancient Greeks. And so he thought the United States could improve upon these attempts of past self-governing republics because. You know, it was larger and more diverse, something I find very interesting considering we have so many interest groups and are one of the most diverse societies today. But at least in my lifetime, that has tended to correlate with none of our problems ever being meaningfully tackled because finding common agreement on issues across the U.S. is difficult. You know, Madison actually associated the downfall of past republics predicated on the components in which majority rule was so prevalent in most aspects of their governing. When he's writing the Federalist Papers with Alexander Hamilton and John Jay, he lays out this point in Federalist 10, citing the destabilizing effect of the superior force of an interested and overbearing majority on a government. And so this is why he lays out the groundwork in his preceding Federalist Papers to argue 
you know, the vast array of checks and balances the country would need to, you know, in order to avoid a majority rule that imposed their will upon the entire country. And so yeah. all the checks... He didn't, he didn't get a great degree because he finished in two years, but the university now recognizes him as the first graduate. Oh, oh so it's kind of like a, a whole mantle, right? Mm -hmm. Just weird, like, yeah, I just didn't... I actually didn't even know that Madison went before this episode. He went to Princeton. Not that I've ever been to Princeton before, but I just thought that that would be more of like a thing they flexed. Instead, they flexed like Woodrow Wilson, which we talked about, which I, I just don't. Yeah. I mean, they both kind of like, well, I won't get it. Okay. So <laughs> all the checks and balances that we see in our government today between not only our three branches of government, but our understanding of the concept of federalism and how power is divided between the federal and state governments are almost exclusively designed by Madison in the American format. And, you know, you can say what you want about the weaknesses of the Constitution, but, you know, it's one of the oldest governing documents to endure into 2022. And, you know, there's a reason for that. It's a brilliant construction of governments that almost gets completely, you know, everything completely right in ensuring no one can ever get too powerful in our society, especially at least one person, especially from someone living in the 18th century. You know, what's also important here is that, you know, this is how we should, you know, separate Madison from other founders of the era and, you know, not tie him up with being part of any particular group. I know I did that a lot on the Monroe episodes with linking Madison as being part of, you know, the three best friends crew of himself with Jefferson and Monroe. But, you know, how Madison forms an alliance with those guys is much more noble than I've probably given him credit for so far. When the Constitution is being drafted and argued for passage in the Federalist Papers, he's not, partnered, he's not partnering with Jefferson and Monroe. He's instead primarily working with Alexander Hamilton. And, you know, Madison does not have any beef with Hamilton's desire to, you know, instill economic legitimacy to the U.S. like Jefferson does. And together, they pretty much single-handedly push the country away from the Articles of Confederation towards the Constitution. You know, many Southerners are ticked at Madison for partnering with someone like Hamilton, who was viewed as a greedy and rich Northerner who was sympathetic to the British. And so a bad rapper. We're going to get to that. Not a bad rapper. And so when the Constitution makes it to ratification and the first Congress has to be elected, there are a faction of Virginians who try to punish Madison by running Monroe against him in the first House of Representatives race of Virginia's 5th District. In order to win this election, Madison argues against Hamilton's claim in the Federalist Papers that there isn't a need for a Bill of Rights to be passed, instead strongly advocating for them as many Southerners were concerned that their freedoms they won from the British were being taken away again, but just in a more complicated governing structure now. You know, Madison's promise to pass the Bill of Rights gets him elected over Monroe, and he delivers on that promise when they're actually finally ratified as our first 10 amendments in 1791. This period between 1789 and 1791 is, you know, really the first honeymoon period of American politics. You know, there are differences in key political leaders, but everyone is getting along well enough with Washington, you know, trying to present himself as a compromising head of state. And so this is why his cabinet is so diversified of, of white men, but at the time, geographically, um, and while, <laughs> Madison is not a cabinet member. He becomes diversity a, back then used to be like, ooh, you're he lives from, by a farm. Yeah, oh, he's, he he lives by a river. I know. Yeah, like I have somebody from Georgia and like New Hampshire in my cabinet. Oh my God, you're so progressive. Like, wild, yeah. 
Um, but he becomes a close advisor to Washington at the time for actions he can take that are permissible under the Constitution. As Madison pretty much put together the document and no one yet had quite a deep understanding of what actions could be constitutional at the time. And so Hamilton, Madison, and Jefferson even show, you know, early signs of being able to compromise as well with the passage of the Funding Act of 1790. Hamilton was able to pass through the policy of the federal government, assuming state debts, which raised American credit and legitimacy in the global economy. And in return, Madison and Jefferson got the nation's capital into the south, bordering Arlington, Virginia, in what we now know as Washington, D.C., all our listeners who are Hamilton fans, which is probably all of them, will know that this agreement is beautifully performed in the musical during the act in the song The Room Where It Happens, um, narrated by Aaron Burr. Burr actually introduces Madison to his wife, Dolly Payne Todd, in the 1790s, and she becomes, you know, she becomes, or sorry, she provides the blueprint of how, you know, the first lady or first partner conducts their roles as a spouse of an American president. And you know, as she was, you know, the first to take leadership on organizing social gatherings in D.C. and interacting slash hosting White House guests. You know what I'm talking about? The room where it happens, Yusef? You know that song? No. You don't, you you didn't get that far into Hamilton. It was in the second act, so you had to get no, through like that. No, didn't time. get there. Didn't okay. get there. No. My gosh. No. I gosh. saw one King George rap oh, song, I'm sorry, which was pretty good. And then <laughs> I lost it after a few minutes after that okay okay mm-hmm. one day we're just gonna watch it together and maybe we'll do a podcast recording on watching together that'd be really fun <laughs> that'd be one of our side episodes maybe all right not gonna miss my shot okay as we all know from many of our previous episodes now in again the brilliant musical hamilton this era of compromise <laughs> does not last long okay hamilton convinces washington to advocate for creating a national bank and Madison advises Washington that forming a national bank was unconstitutional. And so Washington at this point is starting to show that Hamilton's influence is far more significant at this point, and he supports its passage in late 1791. And so the final straw... How was for- it, how was it uh, unconstitutional? Well, because, you know, you can't impose a national bank on, like, the states like that, right? Like, I think that Madison's interpretation of federalism was very constricted. That, is that why they called the Confederate? Because of federalism? Well, no, I mean, I think they, they, it used to be called like the, like the Articles Confederation. Usually, like, confederacies have, like, a, a slant towards state power, at least, like, in So that's why they, they chose the Confederate name? I think that, well, I don't know 100% on that top of my head, but that would make sense to me, right? Um, yeah, because... I mean, yeah, that that was kind of like the Southern sympathy towards states. Like they felt that states should have an ultimate say in these kinds of things, such as money and banking and projects. And so, what like- was what would have been constitution constitutional? Um, just tiny banks in each state. Yeah, they have a bunch of state banks. You know, mm. right? So there's a, a bunch of local and state banks, and they can decide, you know, how they want to, what they want to invest in, and where they want to, like, you know, put out loans to. You know, and the federal government doesn't have any you know, any um, authority to oversee that process. Like so. a bunch of credit unions? Right. Well, so, yeah, that that's the whole argument is that, like, Hamilton is like, well, how are we going to ever be a legitimate nation if we don't have, like, you know, a, 
a central component or if we don't tax the peasants yeah well i mean i'm i'm more sympathetic to the hamilton argument on this just because it's practical right but i mean and also i think madison had a ton of money right and didn't really see like how poor people lived in a sense and why you would need a central banking authority to kind of help out the masses but that's not what they thought government was for so we didn't talk about that a lot but that's just you know it's a very big philosophical argument you know washington at this point again it's starting to show that hamilton's influence is far more significant than madison's and so madison you know the final straw for his support of washington comes when britain declares war on revolutionary france in 1793 jefferson and madison you know are convinced that supporting france is the obvious choice especially after britain seizes hundreds of american trading ships heading for france you know madison wanted to engage in a trade war in which the country would refuse to supply britain with you know the us's agricultural riches of several you know different kinds of crops that you know fed some of the British mainland. Instead, Washington signs a Jay Treaty, uh, which favors trade, uh, you know, with Britain over France in a sense, you know, in a sense shows the U.S. is hedging its bets on a British victory, even as they still technically remain neutral in the war. And so Madison was really outraged by the Jay Treaty and believed that Hamilton was doing everything he could to bring an aristocratic monarchy into the American government. And that he had used Washington to root out the self-governing principles that they had built together through the Federalist Papers. So he kind of feels betrayed almost, right? And so his choice became clear in firmly allying with Jefferson in forming the Democratic-Republican Party. And Adams's presidency, John Adams, that is, only further validated Madison's choices in his head as the passage of the Alien and Sedition Act you know, ban citizens from criticizing U.S. government, something that was very obviously unconstitutional and an insult to the government that Madison, you know, worked so hard to meticulously form. Madison's ascension to the presidency gives, sorry, I should say Jefferson's ascension to the presidency gives Madison new life as he vigorously campaigned for him and knew that Jefferson winning meant that he could have the Hamilton-like influence on the presidency that he failed to establish with Washington. Jefferson makes Madison his secretary of state, even though he had essentially zero foreign policy experience, but Jefferson and Madison both knew at the time that they specifically treated that position as the passing of the torch for the presidency. And so he serves in the position for eight years of Jefferson's administration. But to be honest, he's pretty underwhelming throughout his tenure. The, for, the signature foreign policy decisions made were, you know, not Madison accomplishments, as he sent Monroe to negotiate with France on purchasing New Orleans. Yeah, to, Monroe was the one that was killing it. Right, right. Yeah, I feel like Monroe pops up a lot in Madison's story and not for the benefit of Madison, even though he's kind of like outshining him, especially with these kinds of things. But yeah, you know, he was sent to France on, you know, purchasing just the city of New Orleans. Like they just wanted to get that very critical port to expand the U.S. and gain full control of the Mississippi River. As we know, it unexpectedly led to an opportunity for making the Louisiana Purchase that included land well beyond the Mississippi River. And like I said, you can't really own this accomplishment, though, besides, you know, the only thing he really did do was he convinced Jefferson to not, you know, propose an amendment in order to pass the purchase into law, but rather just to have it be held to a vote in the Senate where he knew would be passed despite its potential unconstitutionality. 
Jefferson was actually having more trouble with doing the Louisiana Purchase than Madison, um, based off of you know constitutional arguments. Madison just said, "Hey, this is like practical. Let's just do it. Who cares about the constitutionality of it?" Which, again, these guys kind of just go back and forth a little bit sometimes based on you know their own like political you know. Yeah. Politicians is very convenient how flexible their ideals are when it's but you would think favorable that these are the to most, their party. Aren't these guys supposed to be like the most ideal-minded people? They're no, like they're the, human beings, Neil. They're human flawed beings. When a man sits down and writes, you know, we the people and for the people and then tells his slave, hey, give me another cup of water. I need to keep writing this important bill so everybody has the same rights. It's like, yeah, he's a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. No, he's short. And <laughs> short. Okay. Well, okay. The other, the other major foreign policy decisions that come in the Jefferson administration happen. Right they should have as- sent Madison to meet with with Napoleon, and that would have been Ooh, who a meeting that? of giants. <laughs> Kinda, that would have been yeah. like that would have been a great headline actually. Mastered wow. on every single. Renaissance painting. Just two tiny that's men. Good, that's a good shirt idea, actually. We should have like a shirt with Napoleon and Mass and shaking hands or something, or doing some kind of meeting with that on there. That would be great. I feel like a I lot of I think they were both the same height, but I think uh, Bonaparte was 5'4 as well. They like, edged him out or something. It was Bonaparte 5'4? Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if they ever met. Uh, probably not, but that's really that. Yeah, I didn't think about their heights being compared. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm gonna think on that that shirt idea more, at least something along <laughs> the lines of that, maybe like a meme or something. But the other major foreign policy decisions that come in the Jefferson administration happen right as it's coming to a close with the issue of impressment or the impressment of American sailors by the British. Impressment meaning that. The capturing of those sailors and forcing them to serve in the British Navy through violent means. The situation is incredibly synonymous with the dilemma the U.S. had faced just you know 10 to 15 years earlier that led to Washington signing the Jay Treaty. So Madison has a chance to you know throw it in Washington's face. Well, not really because Washington died in 1799, but he has a chance to kind of just throw it in everybody's face then that you know he could validate his stance from 1793. When he convinces Congress, then Jefferson to instead pass the Embargo Act of 1807, banning exports to all foreign nations to punish the British. As we covered in the Jefferson episode, Madison completely overestimates the U.S.'s impact on the British and on the British economy, that is, and global supply of goods. And this act does very little to hurt the British at all, but you know, instead puts the U.S. into an economic downhill spiral. Instead, what's you know, even more interesting is Mon- Monroe gives Jefferson and Madison the same out that the Jay Treaty gave Washington in 1793 when Monroe negotiates the Monroe-Pinckney Treaty in 1806 that would renew the same provisions of the Jay Treaty and limit the practice of impressment. Madison turns that down and alienates Monroe, like you said, who's killing it, to the point where, you know, he does not even get Monroe support for the 1808 election. Yeah. So. The, 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 you know, it's like classic boy band drama, man. <laughs> just, you know, wants, wants to go on and wants to do his solo album and the rest is just jaded yeah. and, and bitter. 
that's it. I mean, I don't even know how to, you know, what boy band to compare to. You know, it's like maybe it's like a One Direction group. You have several people trying to go solo, but yeah, yeah, it's like it's rough out there. And Madison's not really, not really standing out. He's not the Harry Styles of this group, that's for sure. He but, definitely doesn't stand out. <laughs> but that in itself, you know, doesn't matter much for his own candidacy. As the Federalist Party is, you know, severely weakened at that point, and, and Madison still is able to easily win, but he goes into office with, you know, more limited credibility than anyone would have thought to be possible from someone who was such an important figure to the country up until that point. So here we are, you know, the father of the Constitution ascends to the highest office of the government that he created, and ironically, his presidency was entirely about issues of foreign policy. You know, even as Congress repeals the Embargo Act that he and Jefferson pushed forward, the British are still attacking American vessels trading with the French on a regular basis, essentially using them as an extra weapon in their war against the French. So the American public's anger is at an all-time high, and a push for war grows throughout Madison's first term. You know, to some listeners, this may seem illogical considering the British have you know, the strongest military at the time. Napoleon's army, though, was more than a handful for them, and that left them vulnerable in one place in particular. You know where that is, Yusef? The Caribbean. Well, no, you got to go the other direction, Canada. No. So invading Canada seemed like the smart play for Madison, considering the British forces, you know, there were limited in supply. You know, the assumption made from Madison was that U.S. forces would be able to take Canadian cities relatively quickly and then use them as a bargaining chip to end impressment or worst I case for, scenario, i always forget that there's the canada is still part of uk and yeah, australia like, too what's it called like the british like i think that's actual i think the common commonwealth. commonwealth that's right there's like a whole i watched a, a video in on new that zealand recently. as well i'm not sure yeah i think so there no there's like a i think like 50 plus countries or somewhere like 40 to 50 countries that are part of the commonwealth it's wild that they stayed in that whole um group or i don't even know what you call that i guess yeah i guess the the anniversary parties are awesome i don't want to leave the group <laughs> yeah no i mean I guess, well i guess it's like a foreign relations bargaining chip now for countries a way to, for them to kind of get a, more access but but the assumption made from Madison was that u.s forces would be able to take canadian cities relatively quickly and use them as a bargaining chip and impressment i ended up there so you know, worst case scenario, they would annex Canadian territory in the United States and cities like, you know, Montreal, Quebec City and Toronto would all be American territory today. The public was on board with the plan, along with Congress, who passed a declaration of war with Britain on June 18th, 1812 to begin the war of 1812. <laughs> Unfortunately for Madison, his choices as Secretary of State continued to come back to haunt him in his presidency. You know, during these, or during those eight years, he and Jefferson severely shrunk the size of the standing U.S. Army, making them, you know, much more ill-equipped to fight an expansive war. And, you know, on top of that, hostile relations also grew during Madison's uh, Secretary of State tenure with Native American tribes in the Northwest Territories of the Ohio Valley region as well, um, and in Western New York. And so the British used the conflict to partner with those tribes, such as the Shawnees and the, I'm probably butchering this one, Potawatomi's, in fighting American forces. 
with a more organized and in many cases a more motivated force, Americans by the end of 1812 lost, you know, battles in Detroit at the border of Niagara Falls and again in just other parts of western New York along the Canadian border. And again, these forces, at least the British ones, were essentially like the sea squad of the British military as most of their focus had to be on Napoleon, humiliating mass and early on in the war. And so nice. You know, if there was ever um, an election, but it's pretty, pretty freaking stupid to try to go up against the British Empire. Yeah, especially when they barely survived the creation of of, of our nation under uh, Washington, and British were like, "All right, just keep it up. We're busy over here. We're tired. Fine, yeah. you can you can have it." And then we're like, "We want to fight again, bro. Come at me." You're like, "No, stay over there." Yeah, and then they'll there. I know you're gonna say it, but then they come over and just take a dump on on, <laughs> on the White House. <laughs> do, yeah, that's oh, oh my gosh. I remember reading about that in history in class, just being like, "What in the world this happened?" Like mm -hmm. I was like shocked when They're I was like, "Oh, you want to mess with us? I'm just, I'm <laughs> gonna go to your home. I'm gonna take a crap on the floor and then burn it to the ground." And they're like, "All right, that, that is cold. Like I don't like just burning the capital to the ground. Like that is." Goodness. And that's the thing is like, I don't even know why they wouldn't just do a military, like a little bit of a military buildup before provoking this fight, too. You know, it just was, mm -hmm. you would think that somebody, even if they weren't in the military, might want to ask about that. But yeah. And anyway, if there was ever an election that the Virginia presidential dynasty, you know, were going to lose in the early 1800s, 1812 was really the only year that was possible. Okay. The Federalist Party didn't even put up a candidate, but instead hoped that the Democratic-Republican, do it, do it, D-E-W-I-T-T, -T, I'm going to say do it, Clinton, who was a, who was a northerner, would draw— We can do it. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah, could have been a good—and I'm sure they didn't make that a slogan, but, you know, he would draw— Just do it. That's where the Nike uh, logo came from, the Nike uh, slogan came from. They were huge do it fans. Yeah, you've never heard that first name other than this guy. Dewitt. Is it Dewitt? Dewitt? It just sounds. Yeah, it's an interesting first name. You can, would, so, anyway, this guy, you know, I'm going to say Clinton now, would draw in Federalists to vote for him and finally take down the Southern reign of control over the White House. And so they were almost successful as the election really came down to one state, which was Pennsylvania, where Madison did win by a comfortable margin. But The campaign was dominated by the issue of, you know, supporting or, you know, opposing the war. And, you know, Clinton's anti-messaging you know, anti of the war only resonated in the Northeast. And even as he still, you know, tried to pick up states that were, you know, pro-war, he, like, flip-flopped his messaging everywhere he went in that sense. But, and so that's why, you know, eventually he just wasn't able to really amass because Madison really owned the whole Southern vote. And got Pennsylvania, and that was pretty much all you needed. And so still, Madison was shook by how close the election had become and pushed for the military to, you know, rebuild and acquire some victories to get back on track. And so Madison eventually got his wish in 1813. American forces won a few crucial battles on Canadian soil, most famously in the Battle of the Thames River, which, you know, killed one of the most important Native American leaders in history, Tecumseh. And so You know, after that, fighting would still, you know, continue to rage on for, you know, two more years. 
it's really weird, you know, when you go to like Lake Erie and whatnot, I don't ever really see signs of like the War of 1812, but maybe it's just because I haven't really been looking for them, but there's like so many battles fought and like kind of like, in the, yeah, yeah, it's kind of weird. The British still were able to, you know, have their own victories as well. They captured and burned down the whole city of Buffalo. Um, and in 1814, as we already noted, they you know, finally took down the poet. Well, sorry, I'm going to repeat that again. And in 1814, they finally t- took down Napoleon to put their full attention on the United States. And this is when things got especially concerning in terms of if the U.S. was going to survive as a republic. As the British felt justified to you know, pick up their aggression after fighting with relatively poor forces for two plus years. They sent much more of their navy into the American coastline, occupying half of Maine and you know, having success putting troops to land in, in DC. Um, Madison barely got out of the city before, you know, before he would be captured. And the British burned, like as we said, the entire city to the ground, including the first White House constructed where Madison and the former presidents had lived. So you know, we can't go to the White House and say that Jefferson, Adams, or Washington lived here because Madison kind of messed that up for us all. <laughs> Not that I, like, care that much, but it's just, like, wild what transpired. And so <laughs> the war eventually comes to an end because um, British citizens on the mainland are tired of funding never-ending wars from their perspective as, you know, they've been fighting the French for the past 10 to 15 years, even before the War of 1812. Um and American forces, you know, are just able to do just enough to win a crucial battle in the city of Baltimore after the burning down of D.C. This is where we get that, you know, Francis Scott Key poem in the Star Spangled Banner during that battle. And this put Great Britain at the negotiating table for a treaty. Um, and in fact, a treaty was signed just before Andrew Jackson gets his famous victory over the British in New Orleans that propels his political career. And so... There was this huge misconception at the time that the war ended because of that that victory from the, in New Orleans. And in some sense, it led to Americans claiming victory when really the whole three-year conflict, I guess, was a stalemate. Um, but with all that, Madison gets a huge popularity boost. And that's how we like understand this era, like the era of good feelings begins. So My essentially, guys, like they, we, we won the war, quote-unquote, because... British people were like, can you stop it? Just let it go. A little bit. Yeah. It's like, because well, if they we... took down the Napoleon Empire, which was steamrolling Europe pretty much, they could have just been like, give me back. Give me back the Americas. Yeah. Like, it just would have taken, what, like how many more years? How much more? Probably, money? probably five, or, five or six more years, and they would have taken it back. Well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it would have been, it just would have been a long conflict. And so. Yeah, they just were tired of. I don't know what the situation on the ground there was, but yeah, it's pretty wild. Like, yeah, what would have happened, right? It's kind of like the same scenario. Like, what would have happened if the United States never got involved in the world wars, like WW one and WW two? I'm not gonna say the word. Um, right. My my tongue is not cooperating today. No, I mean, but yeah, you're right. I mean, there's a lot of those what ifs in history, and I. I think that this one is not as big up there as some of the other ones, but I mean, it I is. I mean, there like, would have been no United States. I don't know. I think that they still would have, like, maybe they would have lost territory. Maybe Maine would have been Canada or something. Like, I feel like 
Britain could they could have like kept pushing and get like you know maybe acquired territory. But what was the treaty though? What did they was it like? All right, fine, walk away. Like what did they gain? They just maintained the boundaries that they already had. It was really as simple as that. <laughs> like I guess it's like you know the, the send real, me a bill for the new White House. Like yeah. Really, the, the people who lost out the most on this treaty were the Native Americans because they didn't get any of the land that they wanted. They didn't get their own, you know, like state in that sense, right? And so they were just pushed west, and the British kind of let them down in that sense. Like they didn't, they didn't keep pushing. I mean, I think that they had an agreement with the British that they were gonna, you know, fight until they had at least like acquired territory. I think it was in like the just like the Northwest Territory, Western New York, that they wanted, you know more of their own sovereign land and like yeah they didn't get any of it right so um yeah that's just uh yeah history of how native americans are treated is just pretty devastating to go through so yeah there's that but you know i gotta say there really isn't much else that happens in this presidency which is why i talked about battles so much more than i normally do in our episodes you know it's it's just a very weird one for a guy who had, you know, zero military or foreign policy experience before serving in the executive branch. You know, the only other notable event that occurs is that Madison advocates for chartering the second bank of the United States after letting the first one expire, mainly because he saw how consequential it was to not have a national banking system when a war needed to be funded. Um, but many of his supporters felt, you know, really betrayed by this decision, like, you know, he was betrayed and, and claimed he was truly a federalist in disguise for promoting a policy that, again, he once tried to convince Washington was unconstitutional. So How everything, fucking convenient. <laughs> everything just goes in a circle, like you said. It's just all if he, if he could stand on all of his hypocrisies, maybe he would have reached six feet tall. Okay, okay. I don't think that he's the most hypocritical person. No, he's a politician. Every every single politician is a hypocrite. He definitely, yeah, you know. You cannot reach that level without compromising your values and your ideals. Yeah. And so he has a weird legacy, right? I mean, there's obviously this part where I didn't, you know, touch much on in the episode, but, you know, he owned slaves throughout his life and he never freed them. Um, You know, part of. Oh, no, he bought one. He bought the freedom of one, and that's the one that wrote the famous memoir. Oh. Uh, from the perspective of a house slave, um, the only reason I know that is because there's like a big, like a famous passage of of them escaping the White House when the British came. Oh, okay. Well, I was yeah, just like you know, all of them in that sense he didn't. But yeah, mm. and then actually, what's interesting is part of his will left money to the American Colonization Society, the one. Um, you know, were there, it was the size of society that, you know, wanted to relocate black people into Africa, which was... Just wanted to, they wanted to kick him out. Yeah. Really, really bad. Um, but apparently he really believed in that movement because he didn't leave his money to any other societies but that one. You no, know, you know, even with all of his flaws, like, there is a case to be made. Like, if someone wanted to say that James Madison is the most accomplished American politician, I couldn't really say, like, that they're wrong, like, flat out, because he did kind of design the whole system in which we still are operating on, which I think is just very incredibly impressive 
in a sense. Um, he just, you know, there's not, at the, he's kind of like, you know, straightforward as a person, like of the time. And he's like a wealthy Southerner who, you know, is just really like focused on politics and is, you know, a powerful person, but he doesn't really have like a, I don't know, a, a lot of redeeming qualities other than that, other than just being like, you know, a very intelligent, you know, governing. Yeah kind of guy. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like if he were to see what became of us today, I feel like he would think it's close to if not a a disaster or a breaking point, almost like a failure. Because the I read something interesting about him that he was um analyzing Plato and Socrates and like ancient Greeks and how they would build this I don't remember the words, but this tiny societies, essentially, uh, democratic societies and where, you know, 5,000, 6,000 people would live and everybody would have a say. But he would say that that level of that amount of people Mm -hmm. is not sufficient because it would devolve into people just grouping and then uh, abusing the minority. The hilarious thing about it is, like, this is essentially what is happening in well, our states right now. The majority is abusing the minority. The the taking away of rights, taking away of freedoms, hoarding yeah. power you know, and hoarding yeah. through the guise of democracy and equality. You know, I, I, yeah, that that's a great, great point. Like, but... I wouldn't fault Madison for that. I think that no, I'm not, you know, I wasn't faulting, but his his he based it like he proposed it as a solution to a problem that he saw in the uh, Greek um, setup of a democracy or a republic, however you want to call it. But essentially, mm-hmm. this it just devolved into what he feared would happen if he didn't if he minimized it to just 6,000 people or 5,000 people. Yeah. Well, I think it's like a very point to lens on it. Like, if you look at it from the macro perspective, I mean, he you could really say that he's been super successful. Like, the minority of people, I mean, like, like the, think of, like, how far we've come since he was president or since, like, the Constitution was... Well, I, I think he would, I think, now, I think like, think he would say it's a success. Rights. I think he what? would say it's a success because white people have been killing it ever since as well. So I don't think he would be mad at what's happening. No, but I I would think that like everybody would say in some sense he has been a success in crafting a government that uh, actually has given rights to the minority. It just takes a very, very, very long time, which I think that he always kind of, you know, thought would be the case, right? I don't I mean, know if yeah, he thought that. It, but, it's, but it's just not him, right? It's just, it's... It's him and it's yeah. Hamilton, it's Adams, and it's to a certain extent Jefferson and even well, probably it's everybody George, after them. To probably George Washington threw in a in a in a lyric or a verse too. You know, he raps. I saw him. So um, yeah, yeah. And Jay is like the forgotten son. Nobody talks about him. Yeah. But, well, I feel like Adams is a forgotten one in that musical. I will say he's just mentioned no, but, very. But, but Adams, like in, in a sense, like an overall, like everybody, I guess, confuses Samuel Adams with John Adams. So Adams is like in the zeitgeist to a lot of people that are very dumb, but at least they think, oh yeah, you know, the first president. But one of the first presidents, sorry, 
Um, <laughs> but the but the amongst the family fathers, like yeah, Jay is like completely forgotten for sure. And he probably had some some you know rhyming schemes and cadence to add to the musical. <laughs> yeah. There's only, only a few parts, all right? They tried him out and just didn't make it, all right? He had to be cut, cut from yeah. it. But, you know, I think that that was a really good point, again, on, like, Mass at the end there. Is that, like, I, I think that I tend to think of him more favorably, especially in the context of, like, all the founders, because, yeah, because, like, of, you know, his observations of, like, you know, ancient democratic societies and kind of just taking, like, what were the flaws of them and trying to root out like how a majority can kind of take over a government. Right. And I think that he's yeah. been again, largely successful barring some, I mean, barring like, yeah, you know, a lot of situations in some ways, but like eventually we've kind of worked them out until I don't know if we're going to work out 2022. <laughs> um, but you know, like he so far anyway, like, and I, I don't know, man, it's very interesting. It's very interesting because, like, if you were to say we tend to visualize a world, a world where everybody has the same, I don't know, everybody's a Socrates or everybody's a Plato, but even inside of that world, there would be divide and there would be chaos and there would be people voting against their interests and there would be people being manipulated by another Plato and another Socrates. So because there's like this, like this common thing like this i don't know almost a propaganda or a, or a talking point where you see a dumb person in in online or let's say marjorie taylor green and people tend to say like she has the same vote as you or like this is the same per like she has the same rights as you remember like essentially like oh look at this dumb person is allowed to vote just like you her their voice is as important as yours despite you being this fucking amazing scholar of life because you keep quiet and you order your starbucks and you go to work and you're not quote unquote this crazy person spewing ignorance in the world but i feel like that's it's it's always going to be the same no matter how educated or uneducated people are they're always going to be divide there's always going to be interest there's uh there's always going to be people wanting more than yeah. what they have i feel like somebody i don't know who said this but the world um our society collapsed when we started having things that we cannot see uh, meaning we used to have a society where The things that I owned, I could see and I could have in my hands. Like this is my this is my car, this is my bed, this is my spear, this is my food, this is my fire, this is my family, this is my woman, whatever. But then like it started to become this ethereal thing. Like this is my land, this is my interest, this is my money, this is my uh, stocks, this is my shares. It's become this like vacuum of power hungry people. And essentially, like, circling back to what we're actually talking about, the United States and, and governments and all that have become this vacuum that is impossible to fill. Like, it just keeps sucking life and resources and power and, yeah. and just happiness. And no one gets happy. Well, I mean, yeah, as I say, as, as people acquire more resources and people, you know, like 
get comfortable you get more comfortable in their lifestyle they don't necessarily become happier right so yeah because you're yeah. just constantly wanting more wanting more and it's like if you can't like the things you need in theory should you should be you should, you should wrap your arms around them and carry them yeah food yeah. water and and a, and it's and a, and a thing to keep you warm at night that's pretty much all you well, need like I mean, I think you're. I think you're just doing a huge criticism of capitalism right now, right? Like everyone just pushing. Oh no, pushing. capitalism is awesome. When I drive home, I see twenty nail salons, forty liquor stores, fast food joints, and CBD stores. Like capitalism is thriving, man. Oh, and and gas stations, obviously. That's you know, <laughs> capitalism is killing it. American dream. I don't know. Wait, I'm tired, man. Right? Huh? I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I, you, you mean that, right? Yeah. Or no? Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I'm not trying to also, I mean, that wasn't me saying that I'm like a opponent of capitalism. I just think that there are parts of our society that get so capitalistic that if you're not kind of like acquiring more resources in a way that like society kind of like, I guess like popular culture lays out is like, I don't know, like what you should be acquiring, then you feel yeah. like bad about yourself. If you go on social media and you're not having as good a time as other people, you feel bad about, you know, it's just kind of like this whole thing of like, yeah, well, these people are doing better than me because they have X, you know, and it just becomes a, you know, yeah. that, And I think, right, like Madison and, you know, all these things, like no one can really like calculate how technology is going to develop. And like, I'm kind of worried about, like what else technology has to bring for the next 30, 40 years, however long I live or whatever. But like, so it's just, um, yeah. Seems so long, right? 30, <laughs> 40 years more. Yeah. And I'm just being, I mean, I'm not trying to like in 30 years, I'll be like 60. So, I mean, I guess I could live like 50 more years, but yeah, I just, it's a long time. <laughs> um, like, it's a long ass time, man. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, I, also while we're on the subject of age, I wanted to say there is someone alive today who was living during a time where someone could have remembered Madison, right? Because he dies in 1836. So if someone today, I, I actually learned there are almost 100,000 people in the U.S. who are 100 years old or older. So like say somebody's 105 right now, they could have known somebody who had like spoken to Madison like in person. Isn't that kind of wild? Like just like kind of two generations away from yeah, it kind of loses his like um. But think about just how much changes in two hundred years is why. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> no, yeah, it's just like it loses his pristine, like it's mysticism. Um, because you feel like you're there so far away, kind of like um, I've always you know I respect all religions, whatever. I don't care, do whatever you want, but. When people talk about Jesus, Jesus and Catholicism, they're like, "All right, Jesus is mythical figure in the past that we never knew." But then you think about like the Mormon Church or the Scientology Church, and you can like, they had like a driver's license, the founders, you know, <laughs> like people yeah. knew them. Like, does somebody like somebody smelled their farts, you know? Like, you can talk to somebody that you know they stood them up on a date or they shortchanged them. True. Like. It really loses like that. Oh, the founding fathers. Yeah. Oh, I knew him. He was an asshole. He didn't want to buy me dinner or whatever the case may be. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Like so, it, you know, okay. I feel like uh, we're rambling. 
I feel we lost the episode, but we got to circle back. Okay. Um, all right, Neil, it's time for everybody's favorite part, the part where I make your shoes, your favorite president of all time, legally binding. The last time around, James Buchanan, a man that did not deserve a nickname, lost against Dwight D, not LGBT. But how about we put him up against the short king, short king. had his son. Neil, who's your favorite president? I went back, I kind of did go back and forth this one because of just like Madison's like just his very uh like foundational like contributions that again just have like stood the test of time more than any other founder. So like But I feel like he's not the best press like um, I mean I don't want to influence you, but all the <laughs> good things that he did wasn't during his presidency. It wasn't, right. So if we're going to judge it based off of those eight years, I mean, so John Adams, you know, your guy did say that like he, um, like his legacy at the end of his presidency was like better than like the presidencies of Washington himself and Jefferson combined. You know, that was like an actual Adams quote. I paraphrased it. So I thought that was interesting. But if I'm just looking at both presidencies, I mean... Yeah, because like I mean, Madison was just kind of doing. He, I mean, it wasn't really doing much besides saying like, "Yeah, we need to win the war." I doubt that he really was having much influence on how the war was going, other than just yeah. Him, like him, and Lincoln are the only presidents to be in in a battle. Okay, what do you mean in a battle? Like in uh, battle? Yeah, they were they, they led troops. They didn't lead troops. They didn't like that, they were on the battlefield. Yeah, they were there, you know, making decisions, <laughs> taking a tea break. I don't know, but they were in the battlefield. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to give this one to, to Eisenhower still. Madison, I mean, they were talking about found. Yeah, I think that when we have founder presidents, it's hard because you want to, like, judge everything they did during, like, the revolutionary times and kind of put it into that. But as a president, I actually would probably pick Monroe over Madison, maybe. That would be a hard one for me. That I'll do that at the end of the season where I have all the rankings. but. Yeah, Eisenhower still is going to stay on top. All right, Dwight D, not LGBT, on a winning streak. Neil's favorite president of all time, illegally binding. So, Neil, now that we've saw the pre-war of civil, sorry, now that we saw the pre-civil war lead up, and now uh, we saw the almost the collapse of the United States before it actually you know, had a solid ground underneath them. Where are you taking us? What, is, what precedent is going to lead us into what war next? <laughs> well, we're going to end our season three on an Ohio president, actually, who is transitioning out of a war. And that is Warren G. Harding, the guy Ooh. after Woodrow Wilson. So let's do it. I, I've, I've, that's a name that I've heard multiple times. That's a, that's a, that's a, good, that's a good precedent name. All right. Uh, we look forward to we look forward to you hearing from us in two weeks with uh, Harding. Thank you for listening. First, you for thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for sharing. Send it to your friends. Send it to your family. Listen to it again. Download it and listen to it again. Fall asleep to our sweet, sweet voices. <laughs> and um, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye. <laughs>